episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. And here at What's the Res, we are looking to help resource the high school debate community. And to that end, my guest today is Dr. Kelly Fitzsimmons Burton. Dr. Burton is a residential faculty member at Paradise Valley Community College. She recently finished her doctoral work through Faulkner University's Great Books Honors College. She's the founder of Public Philosophy and Public Philosophy Press. She's also uh, a published author with two books, uh, Retrieving Knowledge, A Socratic Response to Skepticism, and then Reason and Proper Function. Kelly, welcome to What's the Res? Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I have to say, I really enjoyed uh, seeing our, I think it was you last last spring that was uh, commenting about uh, PhD robes and, and rings and, and hats. And oh, yeah. I enjoyed seeing the fact, yes, it can be done. The degree can be finished. That, that's just so exciting. Yes. And that hat is really the best. I last year our, our administrator just finished her uh, doctorate in education, and she did not want to wear the new hat at uh, our, our high school processional. And I was like, "Look, you finished the degree; you have to wear the funny hat. What what is yes. all this for if not for the funny hat?" Yes, that, I think I did the degree just to wear the hat. It's so nice; it's velvet, black velvet. It's Ooh. Just- I, I distinctly remember a uh, being a freshman in college and just watching the processional come in at that first convocation at Hillsdale. This was in the fall of 2007. Uh, there's just something inspiring about something from the Middle Ages carrying all the way through to 2007 and the mace. The, the, the yes. provost carried a mace. And I was just like, oh, I want one of those someday and I want the yes. robe and I want the hat. But anyway, we're not here to talk about regalia the whole time. Uh, well, Dr. Burton, do tell us about your area of research. I know you're very interested in epistemology. Uh, what what'd you do your dissertation on? Uh, well, I did my dissertation on the history of the logos in ancient philosophy and contemporary philosophy. And the logos is this, uh, this thing the philosophers were looking for where there's this fit between our, our thinking and the world. So the, the twin concepts of, of logos, the word reason, and being, ontos. So I looked at that connection and what are they, what are they doing in this search for the logos? Um, I, I did, my, my dissertation title was really long and cumbersome. It was called Logos and Dialogos, Reading Plato's Theotetus Under the Long Shadow of Nietzsche. So it was a kind of a discussion between what what uh, what Socrates would say and what Nietzsche rejected, and then I, I republished it as retrieving knowledge, a Socratic response to skepticism. And what I did in that um, dissertation was uh, I looked at the Theaetetus in detail and what Socrates was doing in asking this question, "What is knowledge?" and he was uh, eliminating some possibilities that had come up through the sophists. Uh, um, uh, maybe uh, knowledge is perception. And so he was really uh, examining empiricism, that all of our knowledge is through the senses, and, and the connection with empiricism to materialism in metaphysics, that all that exists is matter, and particularly Heraclitus's view, that all is matter in motion, all is change. There's nothing fixed, nothing permanent, and so Socrates uh, ultimately argues against that position. And so as I was reading the Theotetus, I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like contemporary empiricism, materialism, skepticism, and sophism. So I, uh, 
I ran across some quotes from Nietzsche and I realized that he was really the one who broke Western philosophy away from the search from the logos that was previously going on. I mean, he's not the only one, but he's the one that explicitly says he's kind of anti-logos. So that's a summary of what I did. That is, I, I find that absolutely fascinating, especially because you, you really, out of all of the philosophers that you could have studied or could have picked, you pick two that, that my high school students, at least, are drawn towards. Yes. They like Plato because they can understand Plato, yes. at least to a certain extent. I know there are, there are infinite riches below the surface, but they're not terrified by looking at a Socratic dialogue the way that they are when they look at Immanuel Kant or Friedrich Hegel mm-hmm. or something like that. They're just like scared by all of the text. Then they, but they look at the dialogue, oh, oh, they're talking to each other. I can get that. But they, they uh, this is my second year teaching 11th grade philosophy, and each year I have students that are fascinated by Nietzsche. They oh, yeah. love him. And oh, yeah. it's, it's I'm glad I didn't read Nietzsche when I was 18 because he was, he was speaking to my kind of atheist soul. But I'm not an atheist now, but then I was. And so if I had read Nietzsche, I would have been like, oh, man, this guy's – the best. I, and now I, I'm kind of uh, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I have one student who told me at the beginning of the year that she really wanted to read Nietzsche. And I told her, well, wait a minute, let's, let's at least do this together. So we get together. We, we've made it through, I think, two chapters in um, Beyond Good and Evil together. And over the first nine weeks of our school year, and but it just I, I think there's something about Nietzsche that speaks yeah. to the teenager and particularly the teenager who is asking very significant spiritual questions. I agree. I, I think he's he's willing to ask questions. He's bold and daring. Um, but when I studied Nietzsche, I didn't read for everything. I just wanted to know what is his take on reason or the logos. So I read all of his works through that lens. And when you see that he really does break from reason, that's the scary part. And he advocates doing that. And it gets, it gets into other philosophers and they take it further. So that's kind of what I explored. How does Nietzsche influence um, analytic philosophy? Not directly, but indirectly. How does he influence continental philosophy? And how does he influence pragmatism? So I looked at those three main strain, strains in, in philosophy, and I kind of tied it back to his his thinking that was sort of popular at the time, that reason does not apply to being. Reason is like a tool. It's an instrument, but it's not grasping reality, which is exactly the opposite of what Socrates was saying. Yeah, if I remember correctly, Socrates is suggesting that reality is something higher than what we necessarily see around us, and that through reason, we almost fight through the illusion that's around us to see ultimate reality. And, and really, yeah. that, that really happens after the soul is separated from the body. But while right. those two are together, we can perceive some level of reality through reason. Right, right. He was saying, uh, after sorting through the, the claims of uh, knowledge is perception and what we perceive is the material world and it's always changing. So I'm always changing. It's always changing. We can't know he kind of comes to this conclusion that there must be something permanent about the self and there must be something permanent about the world. And that's what I was uh, calling the logos in 
I guess Plato slash Socrates, but the logos is is the rational part of the soul or the reasoning part of us. And Aristotle really develops this in his uh, logic. And the, the, the permanence in the world is something these philosophers are going to work out. Okay, is that the forms like out there or is it the forms in, in things like Aristotle talks about? So he, he gets to this idea of the need for permanence. Uh, not like everything is permanent, like like Parmenides, but there's something permanent. So mm. um, it's going to take a while for them to work out this idea, but he introduces it as a um, as an alternative to the materialism and empiricism that leads to skepticism. I I find that really interesting in part because I, I agree with you that that sounds an awful lot like some of the questions that a lot of people are asking today. This yeah. is not just an issue from 2,400 years ago. It seems like we sort of spiraled right back around uh, to that. And in a lot of our debate circles, we run into people who are very uh, – I'm trying to not coin an unintentional pun, but they're very skeptical about the – usages right. of knowledge without act they would not formally identify themselves as skeptics but they really begin argumentation from the position of skepticism right. um, so I, I'd love to I, I want to pick your brain about that in just a moment but before we get there um, I as I was uh, search, as I was googling your name to make sure I had all the facts correct and everything I kept running into this phrase public philosophy I know you've started two different groups with that name in it as, as a uh, sort of as a lecture series, if I remember correctly, yeah. and then also a publishing press. So help yeah. us with what exactly public philosophy is. Why do you think this matters? Why, why is this so much a part of what you do? Great. Um, so in the end of my book, I use Socrates as a model for public discourse. My whole uh, interest stemmed from my experience as an undergraduate philosophy major. I was so excited about philosophy when I first began my studies that I wanted to talk to everybody. And then I realized we don't know how to do this. People don't know how to talk about ideas. And so I kept running into this frustration. So I decided I was going to try to develop a model for how to talk about difficult things in the public sphere. So that's the heart of public philosophy. I, I wrote my dissertation and I had this like proposal in the end about looking at Socrates because he was uh, arguing with people in the public sphere for the public good. And so I wrote the dissertation and then I thought, what do I do next? I guess I have to put this into practice. And uh, I started, my, my friends and I, I didn't do it myself. I was invited to lectures at Arizona State University with my friend Owen Anderson. He was doing it first. And I thought, hey, I have a college. Why can't I do this at my college? Why am I going to other colleges to speak? So I started a lecture series at my college. And last year we had eight lectures. And they were all focused around how can we discuss uh, these difficult things like religion and science, uh, the humanities and interpretation of text together. And um, what is the importance of the humanities? So we had this lecture series, and at the end of that year, I thought, that was really great, and we should keep this going, and we should also publish the papers from the lecture. So I asked the uh, participants to submit their papers, and we just published the first edition, the first issue of the Journal of Public Philosophy. That also helped us to begin a society, the society, uh, the public philosophy society. 
So we had these discussions and we kind of had this little group of people that wanted to keep talking. So we thought, let's start a professional organization where people can um, be mentored or they can uh, talk about how to do this together. And so we, we started a, a Patreon uh, account and people are signing up. I think we have like 25 members right now. Yes, that's so great. Summer. Now, the, the, the press uh, is something I started after trying to publish my dissertation and not finding a suitable publisher. Um, my, my argument is against skepticism, and the publishers that I was being directed towards are, are publishing a lot of things that are postmodern and skeptical. And I thought, this is probably not going to be accepted because it's the opposite. So after a long time, after a year, in fact, I decided I'm going to just start a publishing company and publish people who are doing things like I am, who can't find an appropriate publisher, people who want to advocate for knowledge. So I, I did. I started a publishing company. We've published five books now, and it's so exciting. I love it so much. I love books, and so I'm learning every aspect of uh, book writing, editing, production, typesetting, marketing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so fun. I, I just love it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So it, it's, uh, I guess one follow-up question on that then, uh, is, is it the case that people who are, I'm trying to find the right way to even phrase this question. So please edit my question if, if it's not the right kind of question, but is it the case that publishing houses really do adopt certain stances that shape what they publish? Because it, it sounds like, you have a view of things that is – I'm trying to avoid the word conservative because I don't think that really works here. That has additional political baggage that doesn't address what you're doing. But you have a more realist view, and there are people who are opposed to that realism in thought. And so because that is, – is it the case then that that really – that locks you out of the traditional publishing setup if you have an alternative point of view? Well, this is the way I see it. Either you're an analytic philosopher and you have a certain style in that mode, and it's very, um, it's, it's, it's for professionals. I mean, if you're an analytic philosopher, you'll understand it. But if you're my student, you're not going to understand it because you're at the 100 level. Um, so that was one problem. Public philosophy should be access accessible to the public. And I tried to write my dissertation so that it was a little less analytical philosophy, but, um, the other huge strain right now is continental philosophy, and it's, it's uh, postmodern. I'll just say that. So uh, I didn't fit into either of those molds. I call myself in the strain of classical philosophy, doing something more like what Plato and Aristotle are doing. And so I don't think that's very popular right now. And pragmatism is another. I mean, you know, um, let's do uh, applied ethics. Let's not talk about the good. We don't do that anymore. But let's do applied ethics. Like, what do we do about climate change? I'm, I'm not really interested in that because we don't get back to the assumptions that drive that application. And so I'm saying that public philosophy is foundational philosophy, where we're dealing with foundational questions about how do I know what is real, what is the good life? And we've sort of abandoned the questions about what is real and what is the good life after, I'm calling it post-Nietzschean philosophy. After Nietzsche, we don't do that. So post-Nietzschean philosophy is prevalent right now, and I 
just didn't find myself fitting into a conversation with with those books that are being published. That's that's fascinating. I think uh, it's I, I, there's so many people I think who are finding variations of that theme, and their response is not to rail against kind of the the current paradigm or the current system in whatever field, but rather is to go out and start something new. And I find that very encouraging. Uh, I work for a guy named, uh, named Bob Luddy who found a similar approach in the in the education space, and. When people weren't quite willing to try something different, his, his response wasn't to rant and rail against them, but rather it was to go and start a private school that maybe it'll thrive, maybe it'll sink, but it's going to try something a little bit different. And that's, it, it's, I just find it so exciting to see sort of a, uh, the, the creativity and the effort in people trying to do something different there. Yeah, well, I gave a talk last night, what is public philosophy and why do we need it? And in that talk... Um, I said, public is, is what's shared among all of us in the community of humans, and uh, public philosophy is philosophy done for the common good of the, of the polis. And the polis right now is not looking good. The institutions of culture are broken, is how I say it. And, and I can't work within a, a broken system to fix it. I have to kind of get outside and say, hey, look at what's going on. We need to fix it and call people together to help repair it. And so um, it's not, I love the academy. This is my home. Education is my home. And it concerns me that it is broken and I want to fix it, but I have found you can't fix from within if the assumptions are already, you know, solidified. So I'm, I consider myself an institution builder. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do by starting a publishing company and these organizations that can work uh, with people who are concerned to fix things. Oh, well, uh, just since it fits here, what, what's the website for, uh, for the press, just in case any of our listeners want to go check that out? The website for the press is publicphilosophypress.com. And um, my website has a lot of resources on it. It's called Retrieval Philosophy, but the website is retphi.com, retphi. <laughs> And by retrieval, I'm, I'm suggesting we need to go back into the past and retrieve what was good and hold on to it and build on it. So rebuilding foundations is going to require that we understand the history of philosophy and sort through ideas, what was good and worth keeping and what was not good and is leading to a, a kind of mm, decay. Well, that idea of retrieval philosophy is probably a good transition point to uh, part of the reason I want us to have this conversation today, because one of our bread and butter debate styles that we're always thinking about here on What's the Res is called Lincoln-Douglas Debate. Uh, it's a uh, There's a high school version, there's a college version, and but it's all about that application of philosophy to current political problems. And the way LD works is that students bring a philosophical paradigm to bear on a proposition of value. So they're usually dealing with either a very strong should, or most resolutions will use the word ought, to indicate mm -hmm. if people are following traditional LD, which not everyone does, there's a progressive arm that we're just not going to talk about today, but if they're following traditional LD, then they'll, they'll take that ought very seriously. And the question is not, uh, what will the economic implications be, but rather, ought we 
invade Syria for the sake of creating a greater harmony and peace in the world? Or ought we not invade Syria, perhaps for respecting uh, authority and the fact that we don't have any authority to intervene in Syrian affairs and so on? Now, with that, with that in mind, uh, I, I've heard a lot of LD debaters, both at the, in the high school and college space, uh, they, they'll embrace some of those post-Nietzschean aspects that you were describing, uh, all the way to the point where they will make the claim that logic and reasoning are really Western paradigms, and we need to somehow, uh, to use a, a Derrida phrase, we need to get outside of the paradigm. We need to do philosophy from outside the frame. And they would say that traditional reasoning is itself an imposition of hegemonic power on other parts of the world. How would you respond to that sort of claim? That's really great because uh, the, the work that I'm interested in in epistemology is exactly what do we mean by reason and what have we me meant historically? Because people use this word and they mean different things. So one of the things we do is first define reason in itself and and we can go to Aristotle for that. Um, he doesn't exactly say reason is, but he gives us the laws of thought. So reason is the laws of thought. A is A, the law of identity, uh, the law of non-contradiction. Something is not both A and non-A in the same respect and at the same time. And the law of excluded middle. Something's either A or non-A. So if we hold that as reason, we see that reason is universal among human beings. Where anytime we're identifying something, and distinguishing things, we're saying A, non-A. This is a, a universal human activity. Now, that's different than how we use the laws of thought. Reasoning reasoning is an activity that humans do, and we can do it well or we can do it poorly. And maybe we use our reasoning to justify our, you know, our values that are not universal and not held among all people. And so maybe we use our reasoning from assumptions that we have and go out and uh, oppress I don't know if that's the word people use. Uh, and that's different than like being rational. So we have reasoning as a process. Uh, rationality is something that human beings have as part of their nature. Um, it's, it's something we're born with. We, auto we automatically apply the laws of thought to form concepts, judgments, make arguments. What you guys are doing in debate is is uh, an application of reason, and you can do it well or do it poorly, and that's probably how you're judged in, in these debates, right? So I would say people who claim that uh, reason is a Western construct haven't really defined reason in itself. They're talking about reasoning, and you can reason from a Western construct, you can reason from an Eastern construct. There are uh, several different basic beliefs, and we reason from those. And uh, what we need to do is step back, and this is maybe what the postmoderns are, are helpful for, step back and look at our assumptions. So this idea of critique has come through the, the postmoderns, and I think there is a good aspect to critique. We need to use reason to critique our own assumptions. Hey, um, we say that uh, all of our knowledge is through the senses. What does that mean? Let's use reason to ask, what does that mean? Let's pull a Socrates on ourselves. The West should probably back up and look at its assumptions and see what uh, assumptions do we have that led to this hegemonic thing we did or are doing. So that's my... 
I think that's very that's a that's a very helpful answer. I, I love that distinction that you draw between reason and reasoning. There is the capacity. There is the follow through of these, or there, there's the uh, there, there's literally this act of obeying these laws that Aristotle didn't create. Uh, he but he describes, and uh, so far I, I have yet to see anything persuasive that says Aristotle is wrong about those three laws that you mentioned. They seem very foundational for even articulating anything. Yes. Um, but then looking at the act of reasoning as something we do well or we do poorly—that that's a very helpful distinction. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's something I'm kind of working on, obsessed with. Um, I've been obsessed with reason for like 25 years <laughs> and I've tested it out for 17 years in the classroom. I, I challenge the students come up with an argument against the laws of thought. And it's like, no, I can't argue against it because I'll be using it. Cause once we look at how we use reason, we, we form concepts. We make judgments. Aristotle calls these the first, second and third act of the mind. And we do it. We, and, and it's just kind of how we communicate with each other ideas. So uh, I haven't found a successful argument, not even Nietzsche. He really, really gave it a shot. He, he did, he but it, himself before he broke reason. I, I think it's, it's part of the interesting thing of when people read Nietzsche, if they're consistent, uh, it's one thing if they just become Nietzsche fans and are really looking to embrace the stereotypical 1990s goth persona. That's one thing. Yeah. But if they're truly seeking truth and they read Nietzsche, then they start to be hit in the face by Nietzsche's self-contradictions. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, you used the phrase postmoderns a moment ago. I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this as a currently teaching philosophy professor. Uh, what's your take on, on postmodern thought in general? I've, the last uh, two philosophy classes ago, I was taking an introduction to Christian philosophy taught by Dr. Bruce Little at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He made the claim, this would have been fall of 20, uh, no, yes, fall of 2011, that postmodern thought is essentially a dead end. And that in philosophical circles that was known in 2011, it just hadn't hit the mainstream awareness of philosophy yet. Would, would you, is postmodernism dead? Are we looking for the next big movement? Is it, is it fruitful in some way? What, what are your thoughts on postmodern thought? You know, I think we can, I don't know, I, I feel like, Postmodernism is a big word that we use to cover a broad area of things. Um, I like post-Nietzschean better because you can see different things that are happening. Um, I talked about uh, Heidegger's uh, assessment of Nietzsche. I think it's called uh, Nietzsche's word, uh, The Death of God. It's an essay Heidegger wrote. And he talked about uh, negative nihilism and positive nihilism. And the negative nihilism is like tearing down the old values. So Nietzsche wants to do a revaluation of values. Part of that is tearing down the old values, which would include Christian values and, and Plato and Aristotle, this logocentrism stuff. But there's also ha there also has to be a positive values that we put in its place. And so I see the post-Nietzschean philosophers as carrying out those two things. The negative is the deconstruction, the critique, the critique of everything. Now, I think some things do need critique, but if we critique everything that's foundational to Western uh, society, then what are we left with? Because there's no constructive philosophy. So I don't see a lot of these um, philosophers doing anything constructive, like, 
okay, we're going to tear down, uh, you know, Western values and metaphysics and epistemology, but what do we put in its place? Now, the positive side, I, I argue, is, is put into place by the pragmatists who say, um, yeah, we have to uh, embrace these new values and the values that we're going to, and, and values talk came from Nietzsche. That we didn't have values before Nietzsche. Uh, so he brings that term into place. So we're going to get rid of, I don't know what you want to call it, morality and put in values. And I see the pragmatist philosophers doing that. We need to do what works. And we can't just do what works for individuals. We have to do what works for society, the group. And this is where I see some of the, um, uh, what do you want to call it, cultural Marxism coming into play because mm. it's a way to organize the group and pursue what makes the group happy. And so the, the new values will be sort of group values. That's how I see it. So my, my take on postmodernism, I think postmodernism, there's like a, a narrow way to look at it, you know, within uh, literature and interpretation. But broadly in society, I think it's, it's tearing down old values and giving us new values. And it seems like the new values are coming out in, in sort of Marxist ways. That's really interesting because it seems like the the careful thought is put into the deconstructive aspect, but it's almost as if there are very clever thinkers uh, who are thinking about what is wrong with these current ways we've been doing things, but then the they've deconstructed it and now there's an opportunity and you have uh, I I would not I I've not read any pragmatic philosophers that I'm terribly impressed at the intricacies of their thought. They're, yeah. they're mostly looking at, well, this plan works, and it's about that working thing. So now, they, But they see a vacuum, and in that vacuum comes this pragmatic approach. And then, but the problem with the pragmatic approach is that typically uh, they, they don't satisfy for very long. It works in a given time and place, but change any of those variables, and now we're sitting here 20, 30 years later looking at all kinds of social problems that really... Uh, to take the obvious, if we've got a, uh, I mean, you have the civil rights movement that identifies an obvious evil of existing racial tensions. And you have, uh, I read one, uh, one take on what's changed between 1970 and 2010, that over 40 years, you had sort of a pragmatic, uh, this author called it a racial detente where there were the, the uh, Caucasians and African-Americans just sort of had this tacit agreement that it is wrong for white people to be racist against black people, but it's okay for black people to be racist in favor of their own people. And that that's a pragmatic solution yeah. that is attacking an obvious social problem. But when you get to 2010 and you start seeing you start seeing new generations, that suddenly that pragmatic solution begins to be a lot more problematic. It starts to fray at the edges, and it doesn't satisfy a new generation that wants to know, okay, why exactly is this right or why exactly is this wrong? Right. That's a you know that's a really good observation. So if we've thrown out these old values and we went with pragmatism and it doesn't work, what do we do now? That's why I'm proposing retrieval philosophy. It seems like things are, I don't want to say crisis mode, but it does seem like crisis mode a lot of the time. And it does seem like the younger people want some kind of morality. I mean, I see this drive for ethics 
I noticed in teaching my 101 class the other day that we don't use the phrase, it's all relative anymore. It's almost oh, like praise the absolute, Lord. <laughs> there's these absolutes. People are like polarized. And so the relative thing is, is less there. Now I do hear this. There's no absolute truth. And I am asking, what is, what is truth keen when you put the word absolute in front of it? What does that do for truth? I mean, truth is truth. And they're like, well, you know, there's no like God's eye view of the truth. And I was like, all right, this might be another way of saying it's all relative, but I feel like that's kind of going away with people who are taking a stance. That, that would be, I'd be very excited if, if the general relativism at least faded a little bit. I'd be less excited if it just kind of moved camps a little bit. Cause I suspect I that's just kind of, it's moving around a bit. I think this is a good moment to be doing philosophy with young people. I don't, I, I think young people are looking for explanations. I, I think I would also probably put point to the popularity of Jordan Peterson as being yeah. something similar. Because I, yeah. I have a, at least uh, my co-host on the on the podcast, Ethan Delves, loves Jordan Peterson. We we did a he he read Peterson's book Twelve Rules for Life, and the next time we did an episode, I didn't really intend it to be about that book, but it sort of turned into an hour long conversation about Jordan Peterson. No. Tell me, I've seen some of his videos and my students talk about him. What is the appeal of Jordan Peterson so, to young people? Yeah, I, I'm a little flummoxed because I'm not impressed by him. Okay. Uh, so, and if any listeners... I'm not either. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I like him. I'm not super impressed. And I feel like I, he's saying things... My mom told me, like, you know, see, I, I think that's I honestly I think that's the appeal. I think that's half of the appeal. Um, so if any listeners want to write in and tell us why you absolutely adore Jordan Peterson, uh, you yes. can do that by emailing us at what's the res at gmail dot com. We will gladly read your responses on the next show that we do if you write to us and we'll we'll talk about them. But. So um, I have I've talked with Ethan about Jordan Peterson, and I watched his debate with Slavoj Zizak a few months uh-huh. back, and I have looked at a couple of clips of his YouTube announcements and such. And so uh, with that very limited exposure, here's my take on him. I think he offers very straightforward, very practical advice that is self-evidently, obviously true. Stand up okay. straight, clean your room, work hard. Uh, yep, life is pain. Uh, yeah. It's on you. Take responsibility. If you get your girlfriend pregnant, you need to reorient your life and be a responsible human being. He's saying things that are obviously true that people have stopped saying for a long okay. time. I think we've. Well, do you yeah. think that there may be a renewed interest in truth? Uh, possibly, but th- that's where I start to have trouble with him. Um, I have trouble with him because as soon as you push past the uh, either the the uh, revival of ancient wisdom literature esque things, I mean he he's like, he's like a walking compendium of proverbs. It's why he's so great in very short doses. But as soon as you push past that. He's a Jungian psychologist who points to nothing more substantive than the vast human subconscious. And and then he I get really irritated whenever he talks about the Bible. Because I don't did, did you see his debate with Zizak? 
I saw part of it. Okay. The most painful part of that debate is when you've got a Slovenian Marxist and a Canadian Jungian psychotherapist who can't quite talk about Jesus, but they're having the debate on Good Friday, and they just embarrass themselves by both trying to provide readings through their various lenses of what does it mean that Jesus is hanging on the cross? It doesn't mean universal salvation. It doesn't mean atonement or expiation of sin. It doesn't mean anything theological. It means something about either Marxist in some weird new kind of way, or it means something Jungian and the deep human need for something blah, 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 blah. There's zero substance. And okay. yet I look at Peterson as sort of... He's like an ally to the general revival of reality because he's saying real things. I just wish he would go get an actual liberal arts education. <laughs> okay, this is good because what, what this example brings out is two things. One, the need to do philosophy better because uh, they both have assumptions about reality that aren't being addressed and they're dealing with less basic issues like logically down the road. Jesus is way logically down the road than my maybe Marxist materialist assumptions that can't support anything to do with, you know, the, the crucifixion and its meaning. So uh, probably both of these gentlemen have been, uh, I don't know, consciously or unconsciously affected by post-Nietzschean thinking. And, uh, yeah, I would say if we can identify the assumptions, we can see why they say the things that they do. But should we accept those assumptions? Should we critically analyze those assumptions? Should we do a deconstruction on their assumptions? That's that, that's a worthwhile question. And now I I, I have a list of uh, I, I really like your phrase post Nietzschean. I think I'm going to uh, if, you, if you don't mind, I think I'm going to start incorporating that because it. Modern and postmodern have been so overused as markers of eras, of markers of kind of a uh, an, an orientation towards thought. I don't know that they're terribly helpful anymore. But post-Nietzschean is is really I, I Can like I that. Explain a little bit more what that means. Please because do. Not everyone today is post-Nietzschean. What I mean by post-Nietzschean are those philosophers who separate reason from being, where reason becomes an instrument. And maybe we even invented the instrument. Nietzsche seems to think this. But reason does not apply to reality. It's kind of an anti-realist view. And uh, that's what leads to skepticism. We can't really know reality. And so I'm looking at this movement in history where the first philosophers, uh, they have this idea of reason applying to being. They're like, yes, reason applies to being, but they don't have God the creator. They, they have their materialists. The second phase, and I'll call this like Christendom, we have reason applies to being and there's God and maybe God is the explanation for why reason applies to being. And then in the modern period in philosophy, they, they kind of get rid of God and they say, yes, reason applies to being and maybe this is the development of science. We're, we're studying the material world and uh, there is no God. And then we're in this next phase, and I say it happens after Nietzsche, where reason does not apply to being and there's no God. And that's what leads to, to this moment where we're kind of like, well, then what is reality like? And what do we do with, with morals? So I'm, I'm looking at that pattern. And it's not every single philosopher, but it's sort of a, a movement. And that's what I mean by the history of the logos. When you break reason from being, you kind of, you kind of say there is no 
logos in, in humans and there's no logos in the world. They're not connected. So reason becomes a tool and you have this instrumental reason that say John Rawls talks about. He's, he's, I'd say a pragmatist too. Mm-hmm. I did a, uh, I was, I went to a Liberty fund colloquium this past year that was looking at social justice and I read John Rawls for the first time and it was absolutely fascinating. And I remember one of the uh, professors there is a guy named Micah Watson at uh, Calvin College. Uh, he's a philosophy prof there. And he explained, he did his, uh, part of his dissertation was focusing on Rawls. He took us to a moment in Rawls's life, uh, or really looking at Rawls before and after his service in World War II. As he was a Christian before World War II, and he's not when he finishes World War II. And Watson's argument, at least, is that uh, Rawls... Uh, fundamentally is still trying to do Christian philosophy, but without Christ or God or the Bible. And so he comes across very, very well-meaning. It's as if he uh, he becomes one of those people who talks about Jesus as a great teacher, but no longer pays attention to what exactly he's being taught. But he, so I, I found that fascinating. And now to hear you call him a pragmatist, it's like, oh, he had, he had some of the sub, he may have had the substance behind the pragmatism initially, but he's still holding on to it. And that, that lack of substance really puts him in that pragmatic camp. Uh, I wonder if Rawls read Nietzsche. A lot of the, maybe it was more World War I guys were reading Nietzsche in the trenches. And there are a lot of analytic philosophers who will say, oh, he's not a philosopher, but they were reading him and, and soaking it in. So these attitudes about reason and, uh, and being kind of maybe are absorbed by some thinkers, even though they don't say, yeah, I owe all this to Nietzsche. And what a place to read the man who says maybe there is no meaning to anything in the heart wow. of a meaningless war, surrounded by death, and such, uh, and really with no end in sight. I mean, that just what a fascinating moment. Yeah, I think the world wars were were hard on philosophy mm. in terms of existentially, like how do we make sense of this? Uh, and, and and Nietzsche did influence the 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 Nazis, and so. It's kind of like, wow, look at look at where philosophy could lead us. And so I think philosophy becomes sort of suspicious. Just a tad. I'd, I'd love to uh, just get the benefit of your thoughts on, on some of the folks that at least strike me as those, those post-Nietzschean philosophers. I don't mm-hmm. know if there's uh, – these are folks that I hear come up in LD rounds. So I just love – any thoughts, anything you uh, you know about these guys, I would love to uh, benefit from your knowledge. Uh, I'm thinking of Lyotard, Foucault, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Baudrillard, I don't know if I'm saying that one right, Derrida, and then, of course, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud, and Zizek. Any, any thoughts about those guys around what we've been discussing? Or any other names you'd toss in the mix? Well, okay, I have to admit, I have not been formally trained in postmodern thought, I did analytic philosophy, hardcore analytic philosophy at Arizona State University uh, in my BA and master's program. But then I went into religious studies. I started a PhD program in religious studies and I was kind of jumped into this. They didn't say, hey, we're postmodern over here. They just assumed you were familiar with these people. And so I had to sort of learn quickly. Um, Now, I did look at uh, Lyotard, Foucault, Derrida, in my dissertation, insofar as they spoke about reason. And so I really couldn't uh, speak authoritatively on these people, except that what I am noticing is that uh, 
Kant develops the critique, and these people take it. And Nietzsche was a cr critic of everyone. So this theme of critique and rooting out assumptions is something that they do, you know, logocentrism. Um, now, I, I was reading about logocentrism and Derrida particularly. He may be responding to some linguists, but my understanding is that he thinks uh, there's a privileging of the uh, spoken word. And I don't know, that's, that's sort of uh, narrowly focused. When we think of the word as the logos, it's much more broad. It's written, it's spoken, it's in my mind, it's in the world. So I don't know. I think these guys are good at pointing out our assumptions, uh, but they're not helpful in replacing what they've rooted out. And I think uh, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud together sort of provide an alternative worldview where they're really giving, uh, fleshing out a whole system of philosophy that explains how we know things, uh, what is real, what is human nature like, uh, what, what are the values that we should practice. So when you put Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud together, it's, it's right now, I mean, it's, it's uh, modern material monist without the really, uh, what do you want to call it? It's a, a kind of uh, doubting science, too. It's not like mm. science can tell us what is real or gets to reality. There's almost a, a questioning of science, too, in this postmodern period. And I think it's because of the uh, that kind of Heraclitian flux doctrine that Nietzsche brings back. I think if people really think about the assumption, if everything is material, then all matter is in motion. And this is a, a construct. What we observe is a construct. We're imposing order on the world. I think that comes from Nietzsche, but the postmoderns kind of take that. Everything is interpretation. It's all interpretation. But we can say, wait a minute, that's not true. Everything is interpretation in light of our assumptions. And the postmoderns say we, we don't do foundations, we don't do metaphysics, but they do assume foundations and metaphysics. So we have to be critics of the critics and say, hey, wait a minute, you didn't go far enough in your critique. You're not critiquing your own assumptions. Well, I think that's that's very helpful. And that, that made for, for Lincoln-Douglas debate purposes, I think that helps us know here's where these guys are helpful. Because if you have a case that begins that really begins with examining why a change is necessary, then these guys may very well provide some helpful frameworks and apparatus to say, well, the reason we need a change, if you're going to borrow from Marx, is because we actually have an unjust juxtaposition of the wealthy and the poor. If you're going to borrow... Um, I, I I can't imagine someone effectively using Derrida. I, I had I read some of his work last year, and it just tore my brain to pieces trying to figure out what on earth he means. Uh, but I, I could imagine someone using Foucault to construct kind of a power paradigm right. and say, what you have going on here is really the distinction between power and powerlessness, and that that's being used in some subversive way. And that really Foucault could let you set up kind of a, almost a dehumanization argument that then necessitates a change to make some action more humane than it previously was or something of that nature. I could... Yeah, and, and I think, okay, Foucault really, he, he calls himself a disciple of Nietzsche. 
And he really took uh, this, this geneal- genealogical approach to the next level. He got that from Nietzsche, and he took it to the next level, and he does the genealogies of, you know, whatever. But Prisons, the medical system. Yes. Well. But what, what he also accepts is that we are not primarily rational beings. I mean, if you give up reason is ontological, then you give up there are natures. Humans don't have a nature. You create your nature. This is why we have this identity thing. We can make who we are. We aren't born something. We make who we are. And uh, I think he, he furthered that. And uh, he also, if, if we're not rational beings, then, then we are stuck with power. It's a power struggle. And it's a power struggle to fulfill our desires. So we're desiring beings, and we need to fulfill our desires. The only way we can do that is through power if we can't reason with each other. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing in the public sphere is a power struggle because we've given up on, on the power of reason. And so if we can't use reason to persuade, then we have to use force mm. to get what we want. And I think um, we need to back up and say, what is power? What is the true source of power? And why are we resorting to power? Because we've given up on the other alternatives. That's really that. That's that's a very interesting way to then respond if somebody brings that kind of Foucaultian reading to to a debate. That because I don't know of anywhere where Foucault actually explains what he means by power. He just asserts it all over the place. Right. I mean, this is from Nietzsche. It's you know the will to power. Mm-hmm. If you think about reason, has a kind of power. Like if you see the 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 conclusion logically following from an argument, you're kind of forced. To the, to the conclusion. There's a power to that. But if you get rid of that kind of power, then, then we have to strong arm the other person, mm. right? And we have to use, that's what the sophists were doing. We have to use the, the power of language rather than the power of reason. We have to like use our emotions. Maybe this is where the ethos comes in heavy, right? You tell these narratives, you tell these stories to get people to feel a certain way rather than them seeing the line of argumentation. That's really helpful. Oh, uh, Dr. Burton, I, I, I'm sure you are uh, often in a position to give advice to, to current college students. Uh, if uh, would love to know if you uh, if if uh, for think about help me with thinking about high school students for a moment. Uh, what advice would you give to any high school students who are thinking about studying philosophy formally today in a college or university setting? My first piece of advice would be work on your own critical thinking skills and learn Aristotelian logic. Um, I'm happy to give you some resources. I actually created a whole online logic class. I think it's super helpful because it's the basics. I call it logic basics. Um, So I would say first, learn to think well. Learn to spot assumptions, your own as well. I would say be grounded in your own views. Know what you believe and why. Otherwise, you're going to be swayed back and forth. If you take philosophy, you'll, you'll get lost because there are lots of contradicting, contradicting views. Um, I would say learn that thinking is systematic and some ideas are logically prior than others. So look at the order of thinking and uh, learn to address the, the more basic before addressing the less basic, logically more basic. Um, I would say find a mentor and someone who can guide you. I had a really great mentor. My very first philosophy teacher was my mentor. He's still in my life. He's still, I can go to him and say, man, I read this really hard thing. 
Um, I, I re- once read Schleiermacher, and it made me cry. It was so hard. <laughs> and I could just go to him and say, I, I can't understand this. And he'll say, you can, you have the tools, you know, keep going. Or he'll help me work through the ideas. So find someone in your life that can do that with you, maybe some friends. Be grounded in a community. I have friends, and, and we're, we've been friends for 25 years. And that's why we can do this public philosophy thing, because it requires others. Uh, it's really, really hard to do philosophy alone. And I always think of uh, Raskolnikov in his little, uh, his little room thinking these ideas in Crime and Punishment. And he's like, hmm, I've got these ideas. I'm going to go put it into practice. And he never ran those ideas by anybody else. So doing philosophy alone could be dangerous. I would say find, some, find a community or some friends. Um, I would say be bold. Be willing to challenge contemporary ideas. You won't be cool. You won't be popular. But you will be doing uh, yourself and society a service. So it's going to take some courage. And uh, maybe, you know, you also get to be a rebel. Teenagers like to be rebels, right? They do. Hey, guys, I can't come out tonight. I'm going to read Plato. (laughs) And I would say, if you're going to be a philosophy major, be sure you are in love with ideas. uh, uh, You have to, like have Eros love for, for wisdom. You know, it's, it's love of wisdom and you've got to make sure you love wisdom. I, I, I think you can't pursue the truth if you think truth is not possible. It will be a frustrating event. And uh, have a backup plan for employment. Maybe. <laughs> I did. Oh. I was an English major too, so I taught high school English for a while. I had to, you know, scrap it up until I got a real job. It took a long time. A real job in philosophy, like full time. Right, right. So, you know, develop your skills. It, you, if you love ideas, you know, ha- have a way to express that. And I think if you are really talented and you're really good at what you do, it will find a way to to be expressed. So that's my advice. That's there's some great advice in there. I think uh, several of the friends of, of mine over the years who have did philosophy majors have gone on to have very interesting careers. Uh, very, only one of them is currently planning a career in philosophy as a professor. The others have all found, but uh, different tracks, advertising, management, a lot in teaching, but they've all enjoyed, they've all really benefited. They were shaped in pretty profound ways through those years, studying yeah. philosophy very intensely. I love what you said about Raskolnikov from Crime and Punishment. And since we've talked quite a bit about Nietzsche in this interview, uh, have you explored at all the fascinating chronology of Crime and Punishment and Nietzsche's writings? I have not. So I should, though. I ran across this, uh, I think two years ago when I last talked, I've only taught crime and punishment once. I had this amazing class. I'm, I'm sure from your days of teaching high school literature, you will, you were probably had some sort of page limits that you had to confine uh-huh. yourself to. I, this was my one class where I had no page limit and I had three amazing students who would read whatever I assigned. So we read 24 books together in a single year. It was glorious. Oh, wow. One of those books was Crime and Punishment, and I was absolutely convinced that Dostoevsky must have read Nietzsche because, of course, Raskolnikov is obviously a Nietzschean disciple, right? And because he's sitting there thinking, perhaps morals don't apply to me. Perhaps I can do this horrific thing and my conscience won't be bothered and I could murder someone and not feel bad about it. I'll go find out and go ask these two nice 
they're not very nice, but these two old ladies in their pawn shop. And then he, of course, goes insane because it's not true. And he disproves yeah. Nietzsche. I went and looked at the chronology. Dostoevsky wrote that book. I, if I'm remembering this correctly, he wrote that in the 1840s. Okay. So. He wrote that 20 to 40 oh. years before Nietzsche writes Beyond Good and Evil or Ecce Homo, uh, Ecce Homo or any of the, the texts that really set that theory out. And to this well, day... You know, I think he probably is tracing the logical implications of the assumptions. I mean, if you if you think it through, and I think Nietzsche did think it through. Oh, yeah. You see where it leads. So I don't know that Nietzsche's the only one that saw it, but but I think that's pretty interesting. I'm going to go read up on that. I just, it was, I just found that fascinating. I've, 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 someday I'd love to, I, I'm sure there's a good paper in there somewhere and I've, I've not, yeah. not, not written it or don't, I, I don't have the Russian to dig into Dostoevsky very well, but it, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Now I'm, now I'm thinking. Oh, yep. Uh, it just, it was just one of those places. I was like, oh, and those are two. I think, uh, I think Nietzsche is great for asking questions. I, I think he oh, and God. Marx had something very in common in that regard, that they both saw something and they asked the right questions. I think they both come up with terrible answers to their questions. Yeah. But it makes perfect sense to me that Dostoevsky would see something similar uh, someone who is so insightful and such a student of the human psyche that he would see this is where where things are going. Uh, well, last question for you. If uh, are, now, and just since this is your field, uh, if if you were going to advise students to consider specific philosophers or philo- philosophical texts that might provide frameworks for political thought. Uh, are there is there anybody in particular that comes to mind? You would say, oh, you have to read this piece by this guy. You know, I I did not study political philosophy much, but what I did study was Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics and his politics. I highly recommend those because they give us the basic questions for dealing with the polis. So definitely um, those uh, those guys. Um, I do have some friends currently working in the area. My my friend Owen Anderson. I mentioned him earlier he wrote a book i think it came out in 2015 it's probably behind me somewhere here uh the declaration of independence and god and this is uh, an analysis of the uh assumptions of the founding fathers and their reliance on natural religion i think it's a very interesting work and he also uh just was co-editing a book on let me, I can't remember the full title, but it comes out in October on the First Amendment. And this looks like a really exciting uh, collection of essays written by philosophers that are doing stuff right now about why the, the First Amendment is important. So I, I would recommend Anderson, Owen Anderson, and these old guys. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and certainly contemporary philosophy has, has a lot to offer to students looking at debate as well. Uh, Dr. Burton, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I so appreciate the research and thought that you put into these questions and your willingness to uh, spend, a, spend an hour or so with me on a Saturday morning. Well, this was a pleasure. I always love a good conversation. And this, too, is an act of public philosophy. Yes, it is. And uh, one more time, where, where can listeners find your work online? And also, is there a way that they can support your public philosophy project? The best way to find me online is through my website, retphi.com. 
And uh, I'm on Facebook. If you want to be friends on Facebook, I use it a lot. I know old people use it. But if you want to support uh, public philosophy, the best way to do that is by joining the Public Philosophy Society. And I have to remember the address for that. It's If you just go to Patreon, uh, the, the platform, and put in Public Philosophy Society, it'll show up. And we have a student-level membership for a dollar a month. I would invite you to join us. We have monthly meetings. Um, we... Uh, I put, put uh, exclusive content in there for members. And if you're a scholar, there's there's a $5 membership, $5 a month, and you will get the digital copy of the Journal of Public Philosophy when it comes out. And then there's a patron level for people who want to support what we're doing for $10 a month, and they get the paper copy of the journal. Fantastic. We'll, we'll be sure to link to both of those pages in the show notes when, when this you. goes live. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining uh, me and Dr. Burton today for this conversation. We hope that as you go forward in preparing for Lincoln-Douglas debate and are thinking about reason and argumentation and the application of philosophy to current political situations, that this uh, interview has been a help to you. Uh, You can let us know if this was helpful or do also feel free to let us know if it was unhelpful. We appreciate feedback of both sorts. You can get in touch with us by emailing us at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at the uh, hashtag at what's the res underscore. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash what's the res. And just in case you cannot quite get enough of debate in your life, we do also have a premium channel of recorded debates where we call these real debates with real people. These are educated non-experts who are debating the primary uh, issues of the day. Our September uh, episode will be focusing on Andrew Yang's universal basic income. Uh, I'm debating against a friend of mine named Andrew Wood. He's affirmative. I'm neg on the resolution resolved. The United States federal government should implement a universal basic income. You can find those on uh, the website, whatstheres.podbean.com slash premium, where, and you can access those for $3 a month or $30 for a year-long pass. Uh, we appreciate your support, and we hope that you'll uh, join us next time for more What's the Res. And until then, work hard, speak well, and seek truth. <laughs>